Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. So this week, I, we didn't really work on any of our company projects. Um, we've been really busy with some customer stuff. Uh, but I did get to work on the Pinheck fixture jig tester thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, For so, those who don't know, you want to explain what the Pinheck is? So the Pinheck is a pinball controller I designed for Spooky Pinball LLC, who are up in Benton, Wisconsin. And it's a pinball controller that controls all their, uh, controls the servos, uh, steppers, solenoids, switches, lights, etc., etc. Um, all in one package? All in one board. Yeah. Uh, most typical solutions for pinball controllers are actually multi-boards. You buy one thing, and then you buy another thing to do the drivers and all that stuff. Uh, so this is an one-board solution. Uh, we've made, I think we made like 400 boards or something like that so far for Spooky. Um, so the problem was the, la- the old way of testing required us basically plugging in lots of, like, little tiny boards via connectors. Mm-hmm. And so it took, like, 20 minutes to test it. A board, which is when you have a hundred boards to do, you know, it's, it takes you know half a week to test all these boards. Well, and your test required a lot of input from a human, where they had to look at something, press a button, acknowledge yeah, it, a lot of things. It took eight different programs. Yeah, right. Yeah, to actually test, fully test, and program these uh, controllers. And so, over the past couple of weeks, I've been designing on the side a fixture jig, and this week I got most of it programmed. And it can test all the I.O. functions and onboard systems of the Pinhead controller in one minute and I think it was like 26 seconds. Wow. How, and, how'd you uh, pull that off? Uh, so basically what it does is it's got its own onboard microcontroller mm. that actually talks to the Pinhead uh, over a serial connection. Um, and it talks via pogo pins. And so it's got pogo pins on all the I.O. that mm-hmm. come off the board. It's If you flip the board over, it's got actually little gold contacts mm-hmm. that it that the pogo pins can push into. And so it's basically like a bed of nails kind of thing where the board sits on it, and then you put clamps down, and then hit go on the computer, and you only need to use two programs now, a serial terminal and the uh, PitKit 3 programmer software. I think it's called MPLAB IAP, IPC. IPE. IPE? Yeah, IPE. Okay. Um, so uh, so pogo pins are actually a really great solution for these kind of things. Yes. Because adding gold contacts to a, to your PCB really doesn't add cost. Yeah, since um, since Macrofab, we all use Enig, you basically have a gold finish already done, uh, and it's really smooth. And so your pogo pins have get really good contact on that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then uh, to make sure that the... the um, Pin hex sits at the right height. I found these really cool standoffs that have a uh, swag, uh, an e- swag end on it. Mm-hmm. So it creates a shelf that fits into the mounting holes that are already on the pin hex. Okay, so they help align the board onto the jig? Yeah, uh, um, using the original mounting holes. So I didn't have to add any new mounting holes to this thing. Cool. So it just kind of sits on it, and then you put big clamps, uh, toggle clamps on it, and it kind of just sits there. Awesome. So it's... It's fairly repetitive. It's got some issues because um, the clamps don't distribute the pressure evenly over the whole board. Yeah. Um, it basically puts pressure right where the toggle clamp's at. And so the next revision, I'm basically going to take a piece of uh, 
um, acrylic since that's very hard and and rigid mm-hmm. and mill out a cover jig like a clamshell yeah and so you would put the board down put the acrylic piece on and then just use two toggle clamps to push the whole thing down and so that it provides even pressure across the whole the board? entire board okay that's the uh, next step but it works pretty well as is uh, so so if, if anyone hasn't actually seen toggle clamps before, go go and check them out. Go go do a Google search for them. They make fantastic Why do a Google search? We'll just put it in the link in the in the blog. Oh, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get, uh, even some pictures. Yeah. They're, they're really great for, for putting specific pressure on specific points in whatever your fixture is. Yep. Uh, and you can get them for vertical applications and linear applications, all, all kinds of stuff in there. They're not expensive. No, I think they're $8 on Amazon. Yeah. That's with prime shipping, so they come in two days. I've actually seen a lot of guys use them in uh, CNC's for holding their yeah. uh, their work pieces work down. Work pieces down in, into jigs and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen... Um, my first experience with them was actually uh, a, a woodworker, one of my neighbors when I was in high school, and he did uh, bowls. Mm-hmm. And so when he would glue up his uh, all the layers for the bowl, mm-hmm. is he would use toggle clamps. Okay. And I think they were a lot more expensive back then because we didn't have access to cheap parts in China back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think eight, he, eight dollars is pretty cheap. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of mechanical parts too for him. But yeah, it talks. Uh, basically, there's a there's a parallax propeller mm-hmm. on the jig or the fixture, and that talks. It's basically programmed up to run the entire test suite. Mm. Uh, uh, over basically a uh, 8N1 serial port. Okay. That, it actually talks to the PIC32 that's on the pinheck board, and that's the only thing we have to program separately. Um, there's a test program that runs on the PIC32 that basically sits there and waits for commands, mm-hmm. and then the the fixture tells the PIC32 what to do, like turn this pin to this state, turn this pin to this state, and okay. then you just test... Um, uh, so when and then basically the pick thirty two does that sends an acknowledge back to the the fixture, the fixture goes okay and then it waits a little time just to make sure you know things have settled down yeah, and then it's got a whole string of seven four HC one six fives and then it basically pulls all the I O looks at the states and goes it did what it's supposed to do or it didn't do, right. So it basically, it has a huge memory lookup table of this is what the states are when you tell it to do this. And then just it just it just comparing it just goes just a straight compares <laughs> okay compares. so so with with the fact that this thing controls lights and servos and mm-hmm. matrix banks and things uh, does the test just encompass pulling pins up and down that's all it does cool and so that's really easy yeah, yeah all it does is is you tell the pick to do this uh, to pull a pin a certain direction and it does it. And, and then read the, the, read the state. Yep. And so it, that way you can see if the state actually changed, and if another pin changed, then you can actually detect shorts. Oh, okay. So, so when to, you pull a pin short, you check the pins around it? All the pins. Oh. So you, all, check, you check the entire state of the board. Okay. How many, uh, how many pins are on the board? Or how many test points are you looking oh, at? Oh, 160-something. So every time you change a state, you have to compare all 160. Yeah, but the parallax propeller that's on the fixture is a 32-bit. Yeah. And so you, it only takes like, what was that? That would be like six ops. Yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty fast. You actually, I actually spend more time waiting to make sure that the pick 32 did all its stuff that uh-huh. it should do um, than actually comparing. So it takes longer just waiting. 
<laughs> so so uh, what what happens when a board passes? So when it passes, the serial terminal will spit out the board was passed. Nice and sweet nice and to the and point. Sweet. Um, and if something fails, you actually have to go back into the log and see what failed. But it, but it gives you an indicator yeah, that so, something failed? Yeah, so what it'll do is it will actually um, it'll spit out like solenoid 4 failed. Mm-hmm. And so then you can just look at the board and see you know what's wrong with that. Eventually, the pre- test program will give you a a uh, good indication of what caused the failure. Okay. But I need more data uh, from all these testing to figure out what, like, if it reports this, it's this issue. I need okay. to build up that database first, and then I'll program that into the test fixture, and then the fixture will actually tell the line operator, oh, this solenoid failed, and it's probably the FET fort. Mm. And I can actually program, look at FET, you know, sol 15. And you'll know exactly where to go. Yeah, exactly where to go. Okay. So, uh, uh, shoot, lost my train of thought here. Oh, so w- when when it gets a failure, you can have a failure from a couple different failure modes, but you already said that it can detect uh, a short. It, yes. Well, it can detect a short, and it can also detect a just a pin not changing state. Correct. Uh, when, it, when it receives a short, it obviously flags that as an error, but does it indicate it as a short not yet okay it will though because usually when you have a short it will um because basically two pins will go high yeah and then if it detects that and it goes okay it's probably a short between those two pins that hasn't been programmed in yet yeah but yes it can do that yeah when it comes to programming these kind of test jigs you you spend x amount of time just getting it working you can spend eight times as much programming in all the cases yeah, for errors and faults. yeah exactly yeah so uh, I think that's everything about the uh, test jig. Eventually, we're going to have a. I'm going to write a blog post about this test jig. Cool. And see, help other people develop their test jigs for their um, production runs. Awesome. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a great idea, especially because this isn't a board with like three test points. This is a massive one, and showing success with that, I think, is a great idea. Yeah. Um, I think they started testing this morning, and they got through uh, like 30 boards. Wow. Already. Yeah. So. It's definitely an improvement over the last test method. Yeah. <laughs> which, so, basically, uh, it, which basically was an engineer, one of us, sitting down and testing these boards. Right. So. Um, what's the size of the board? Uh, for the test jig? Uh, oh, so well, the, the, both the, of them. The pin heck is a six-layer uh, board that's 14 inches by six inches. Mm. And the, the test fixture is ooh, 16 inches, which I think is the max we can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, by what, by eight, 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 maybe? eight, yeah, eight, nine. That's a big inches. board, and it's two layer. It, yeah, because it didn't need much. No, it's just if you look at the board, there's a there's a prop on the top, mm-hmm. some connectors so you can connect up to it, and then like a big ring of the one six fives and and five nine fives. Yeah, all the way around the board. It, it doesn't. It didn't even have bottom load, did it? Uh, I think most of it is on top layer. Yeah, yeah. I think the bottom is just ground. Because the jig is just looking at states of a couple pins. Yeah, well, the, a, a hundred something pins. Yeah, nothing, nothing fancy. Nothing too special. Oh, cool. And uh, I haven't had any issue with noise, like uh, noisy pins or something like that. I haven't had any issues. I thought I was going to have to do debouncing or something, but you don't really. even debounce. You just I just read it in. Yeah. I just wait for the states to settle. That's probably why I wait a little. I wait a little bit. Yeah, but works that's convenient yeah didn't I? I think it's because i have that huge ground plate underneath that keeps everything pretty quiet yeah yeah shield and, and, well. and it does have decoupling and all that stuff around the board 
Yeah, but that's the standard. The standard stuff. Cool. So, uh, I was working on the uh, FX dev board a bit more this week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, finally got all the breadboards assembled onto the actual dev board. All, what, 160 pins of solder? (laughs) Times two, (laughs) uh, because we have two dev boards on there. So, uh, that's been somewhat of a a fun adventure, uh, working with the uh, manufacturer of the board and getting, getting the footprint right for all of those pins to fit through the board but we we got it done and it it actually looks pretty nice and and uh i ran my first my first test on it mm-hmm. uh, i I've, I've been testing the peripherals but but this week um i actually built my first dev circuit on there uh so i actually selected a a tube screamer uh, style of circuit okay um just because i one of the things that when oh, so comes... you, you actually made a, uh, a effects pedal. Correct, yeah, okay. yeah, an effects pedal uh, on the board. Um, one of the things that, that you can engineer as much as you want, but you're not going to know until you actually try it out, is what does your noise floor look like? Uh, did you route your signals in a way that makes sense for everything? Uh, and I was kind of sweating a little bit until I actually built something, and I'm happy to say that it's, it's very quiet. Yeah, the uh, video you had on Twitter was really nice. Yeah, yeah. He actually brought his guitar in in an amp and played some uh, music. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was it was kind of fun to be able to uh, to just jam all day and, and build audio circuits. <laughs> uh, so I actually the diode compression op amp that yeah, that was the discrete op amp you made. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we were talked about that a handful of podcasts ago. Yeah, about three four podcasts ago. Yeah. So I I had originally built that in anticipation for using it in this circuit. Uh, and that op-amp has a, has a really unique configuration in the fact that it has, uh, it has diode feedback on the internal Class A amplifier inside the op-amp. Uh, and we can post some stuff on the blog to uh, kind of give demonstrations of what that is. But, but effectively, when you drive that op-amp into clipping, it transitions from the linear to the nonlinear range in a much smoother way than a standard op-amp does. So instead of just completely hardlining, it kind of rounds into it. It rounds, and what I found is it rounds a lot. Uh, it's the the only word I can think of for this is is really smooth. This the the pedal I built is is not harsh at all. It was just really really smooth. It it almost doesn't even get characterized as distortion. It's it's really strange. Uh, yeah, we'll put a audio clip up on uh, yeah on, uh, on the blog post. So yeah, and I have a handful of pictures, so we can we can show that off. So you know, I was I was really excited because I got a got a proof of concept there, and it and it worked beautifully. It's exactly how I wanted it to be. Yeah, the uh, you had some I think it was film caps on there too. Yeah, when it, when I do this kind of stuff, I I'd like to to use the least amount of electrolytics as possible. Yep. So even even for like my ten microfarad. Filter caps. I made them out of. Uh, I used film caps for those. Yeah, I was actually. It's been a long time since I've seen film caps, and I'm always surprised how large they are. W- which is funny because these are actually, in comparison, pretty small. But they're they're huge. I I typically call them hot dogs because they're they're they're, they're big they're circular color. red. Yeah, they're that red color. Cap, so. <laughs> Don't try to eat them. No, 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 not fun. I wonder if you uh, if you overvolted a film cap, if it would turn. Like it would if it's if it's striped up like a hot dog on the grill, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> it would be hard because most of these film caps are in the six hundred volt range, so you really got to juice them to get. Yeah, not even the super simple power supply can do that. Six hundred volt. No, no, no. I have a, I have a four hundred volt 
regulated power supply uh, back at my shop, and even that won't do it. Yeah. The the, uh, uh, the crazy thing with that that uh, that um, setup that you built is actually how quiet that that pedal was yeah. on those breadboards. The the one thing so so when it came to the layout, the board is is ten inches wide, uh, and and it has the input and output jacks on opposite sides of the long uh, length of the board. So hot dog style. Yeah, hot, exactly, hot dog style. Uh, so, yeah, the thing is, you have to run a trace all the way across the board, uh, and, and that's where I was kind of scared, is my is the output trace. Is that so long that it's going to pick up a bunch of junk? But I did my did my homework, and I put I put grounding shields around yeah. it, and it just, fine, absolutely worked out great. And no, uh, no 60 hurt hum or anything like that? It's nope. pretty quiet? Nope. Uh, you know what would be interesting is actually hook it all up, and actually put the scope on it and see if we can pick up anything uh, in the 60 hertz range. I'm sure if we tried, we could make it happen. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> put, put the fluorescent if, lights near it. Yeah, fluorescent lights and... Because uh, we got to experiment with all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, like 480 megahertz. I bet you we picked that up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and the thing that's that's cool about it, too, is since it has all the peripherals on board, you don't you don't have to run jumper cables... Which are just giant antennas to yep. to all your stuff. So the some some of the most critical aspects of it are already taken care of and shielded on the board. So it's it's kind of not surprising that it's quiet, but uh, I, it's a it's a really nice yeah. Nice thing and those uh, breadboards that we have for it have really good retention force. Yeah, yeah, they're they're fantastic. Um, so we don't get any uh, uh, noise just from a connection being loose. No, no. The only the only thing that I think you would see that's a negative on those, and it's a negative with every breadboard, is you get a whole bunch of parasitics. You get capacitance from strip to strip and inductance of the actual connections. But when it comes down to building guitar pedals, uh, guys aren't going to care. Well, it doesn't really matter from what, too much stuff, unless you're doing RF. Then no. it matters. No, no. On to the RFO section? The RFO. So, uh... I found this article by uh, Northbridge, which is a hackerspace in uh, San Francisco. Yeah. It's one of the, I think, one of the biggest uh, hackerspaces. It's up there, at least. Um, and they were finding fuses for some kind of high amperage application. I can't remember exactly what they were using the fuses for. Uh-huh. But they were, uh, they decided to test some just to see if fuses actually would break at what they were rated for. Because huh. they had a whole bunch of uh, 10 amp automotive fuses. That, that's probably one of the last things you would think to test. Test, because you think, oh, it's it's a piece of pressed wire in a plastic enclosure. Right, there's nothing special about it. Yeah. Or uh, is there? Or is there? So they were testing, and so they had some um, fuses from Little Fuse, mm-hmm. uh, and then they had a dollar store fuse, and then a fuse from eBay. And they were all very varying in price. Okay. And the little fuse was the most expensive. I think they bought it probably from a U.S. distributor somewhere. Okay. So it was an authorized little fuse. The little fuse broke at exactly 10 amps, like almost instantly. And it was rated for 10? And it was rated for 10. Okay. Uh, I think it was the eBay one took up to 15 amps, <laughs> and it okay. took about two minutes before it to blow. It did blow eventually, but it was old melty. Okay, that's not good. Yeah, and then the uh, the dollar store one 
kind of never broke and i think they were pumping like 20 amps through it and it kind of got really melty and almost caught fire <laughs> so the dollar store one was just a, a just a wire yeah but when you look at them they look almost the same yeah and so I, I, i'm going to assume basically it's the metal difference the metals were different in each one probably and so basically some factory in china copied the mechanical layout of little fuse but not the alloy. Whatever, but not the alloy. <laughs> hey, do, you know, 20 amps, that's pretty close to 10, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the crazy thing is we see all these, like, cheap uh, 3D printers. Yeah. And they all use, like, the ramps board, and they use clones of the ramp board. Yeah. And the thing about the ramp board is it uses automotive fuses, blade fuses, like these, mm. for it. Now... The legit ramp board that you buy here in the states, if you buy a real one, is it's pretty expensive, but it has authorized, you know, fuses on it. If you buy a ramp board that was made in China, uh, from you know XYZ Alibaba store, <laughs> it's probably going to have XYZ Alibaba store fuses on it, right? Which will probably, you know, never break at what volt, uh, what amperage they're they're rated for. Mm -hmm. And then you burn your house down. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, a fuse is, if if anything, I mean, its its only purpose is a safety application. Yes. It, in fact, all of its purpose yeah. is safety application. Exactly. Therefore, it falls under a an enormous amount of standards, and I'm sure that little fuse is constantly audited they probably take a handful off of their line and while test. they're manufacturing and, and they break them uh i'm sure the dollar store and the ebay one are just hey whatever it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me if it was stamped with uh with some of the ul and csa markings oh yeah the, they are yeah yeah, yeah they're okay. stamped with them but they're they're not tested no 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 clearly um, and so this is this is a good caution for using unauthorized and, and gray market parts even for something as simple as a piece of metal. <laughs> the rule of thumb is just don't use the gray market. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's okay. In some parts, you can only get in gray market. But stuff yeah. like this, if it's a safety safety thing, make sure you get the legit stuff. Yeah, yeah. I... Or test your product. Buy, get, gray, get, buy the gray market stuff and actually test it. Yeah, get get samples. We've had experience with the gray market at Macrofab. Yeah. And some of it's good. Some of it's not as good. So uh, it's it's a it's a crapshoot. You, you gamble when you do it. So. Yeah. Every single time. Because you, you just don't know. And you don't have anyone to run to when it turns bad. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have a distributor. There, on there's no hook. customer support for this kind of... No. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, Arduino, I think it was Arduino.cc. I can't remember which. I think it's Arduino.cc. Yeah. Which one's the one that we're supposed to like? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't There's know. There's two of them. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Arduino came out with a new IDE. It's the same as the old IDE, except it runs on ARM. And so on your Raspberry Pi, you can run uh, the Arduino IDE now, which is pretty cool now. That is cool, yeah. So you can use your $5 Raspberry Pi Zero... To, to program, program your thirty-five dollar Arduino, yeah. <laughs> um, and that got me thinking: is wouldn't it be cool if your IDE was on your phone? Okay. And so you could be, uh, you can change 
code in the field mm. with just using your phone because everyone brings their phone, but sometimes you won't have your laptop. And then better would be if you could push the updates over Bluetooth or Wi-Fi well, to the device. Above and beyond that, if you had the serial terminal available directly on your phone. Yeah, because um, uh, most phones nowadays have USB on the go, right. so you could just on the go over to it. Well, even even if it had Bluetooth, you could Bluetooth the serial terminal over. That would be cool. Yeah, actually, I think that already exists. It does? Yeah. Okay. What well, actually, I have, I have a serial terminal on my phone that can do serial over Bluetooth. Ah, go figure. Um, but yeah, it'd be really cool so you could look at your, your Arduino code, so to speak, and change stuff on the fly and just push the update over. You know, actually, uh, so... so um, I'm I'm part of an art collective here in in Houston, um, and and we do we do uh, large scale sculpture art here. And uh, last year I did a project where I had to wirelessly communicate to um, four Arduinos that were up in the ceiling of an art gallery, and I spent literally a week on scaffolding, programming them and making them all do what I was wanting. To. If I could have just sat on the floor in the gallery and not had to climb up and down scaffolding 300 times, that would have been amazing. Yeah, you can do drive-by programming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sit in your car in the air conditioning outside. Exactly. And, oh, oh, that would be nice. That would have been amazing. Uh, so, yeah, this is a good thing. Um, I'd be cool if uh, more IDEs come out like this, like if uh, Parallax released theirs with the prop tool to be over more platforms. More More options is always a good thing. Yeah. Well, and the fact that with for you know forty dollars you can have a full desktop, and I'm using quotes there, computer, yeah, Raspberry Pi, and do all your hacking on Arduino for forty dollars, have it all there, yeah, all ready to go. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, then there was a article that you linked this week that the uh, semiconductor markets fell. Was it? 1.5% last year? Yeah, 1.5%. So that's the material, not the market. So the chips, chips have gone up. Yeah, oh yeah, Ch- chips Every year, have gone up. We build more more semiconductor chips, but the material cost has gone down. Well, and which is interesting because you would think that for the foreseeable future, everything's just going to keep going up as as humans consume more and more electronics. You mm-hmm. would just expect that. But it looks like they're changing the bonding wires in internal to to ICs. And that caused... Well, were they changing it from to what? So, uh, since the beginning of ICs, we've always used gold. Okay. Because of its uh, its malleability, it's easy to get in really fine capability, and its conductivity is awesome, and it doesn't corrode. So there's a lot of great aspects about it, but apparently now we're using copper, uh, which is cheaper. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit easier to get than gold. And, but because of that, we saw a, uh, a decline in the uh, materials. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, That interesting. all just because of the little tiny wires that connect the pads to your die, the entire market saw a drop of 1.5%. It's, it, that's actually kind of interesting that in one year, enough manufacturers changed to that to make a big drop like that. It must have been that attractive, and it was probably that easy for them to make a switch over. Yeah. Uh, somebody found... I, 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 I kind of doubt that it's just pure copper, uh, but it had to have worked with everyone's... Uh, Process. Yeah, whatever they already have. Just dump copper in there instead. 
Uh, it's interesting. So I wonder if we'll see a drop in pricing on chips, but I doubt it. I bet you the the bond wires are such a very small price of that chip. Yeah. I bet you most of it is the labor in attaching the bond wires. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's what's interesting is the materials. Uh, the 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 dollar amount that for that the semiconductor industry spent on materials. Uh, there was there was twenty four point one billion dollars spent on silicon. Uh-huh. Basically, just your dye material, yep. and then the and then packages in the the metal for the leads and the and all that that jazz came out to an additional nineteen point something billion dollars. So we're spending what's that forty billion dollars? Yeah, about forty. For forty billion dollars in just material uh, to create them, but it ends up being a however many trillion dollar industry. So it's a it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah kind of interesting that materials i guess most of it's probably in labor and qc and all in design rather than the materials which seems to be that's what most industries are starting to uh run into the limit of is just uh labor costs and that kind of stuff instead of material cost oh it's also automated nowadays that yeah that's probably their their big thing and i'm sure that this was a change that was initiated 15 years ago you know there's <laughs> there's some grad student who who'd been researching this for years and years and years, and they've finally made the change. They yeah, finally made the change. And then uh, for the last uh, RFO, there's a really goofy uh, Kickstarter out there <laughs> uh, called Sleeve, and that's S L E E V, no E at the end. Sleeve, sleeve. Um, and it's basically a device that protects your cables. So there was a. You really t- want to define it as a device? I guess that's a sort. What they, I, I that's guess, what they're saying. That's what they say. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, I think it was like maybe like the second or third podcast we talked about just a little blurb about um, Apple was having all that uh, um, those lawsuits for having bad cables. Yeah. Basically, the um, the strain relief was really badly designed, mm-hmm. and so people were just having cable failures. And we actually had an. Uh, a uh, guy at Macrofab, his power charger for his Mac stopped working, and it's got it basically looks like a rabbit chewed on the end of it. Yeah. So, anyways, this is something to preemptively stop that from happening. Okay. And it is a piece of rubberized tubing that shrinks when heated, and has a glue lining that keeps it in place. Oh, I've I've never heard of that before. Heat shrink tubing. <laughs> This guy has a Kickstarter for sell heat it? shrink tubing. Yeah, to sell heat shrink tubing with adhesive lining. And so I went immediately to McMaster. <laughs> <laughs> and you can buy four feet of this stuff for $5. Okay. He is selling two inches for $3. Oh, wow. Yeah. This guy must be making a killing. Yeah. It, what, was it funded? Fully funded. Fully funded. Way over his, his asking. Oh, geez. Yeah. It's one of those... We're in the wrong market. <laughs> His yeah. profit margin is like ninety nine point six percent. I, he's getting away with it. Oh yeah. Uh, and so I was thinking about this, and so he's not. He never says it's heat shrink. Well, I think he says it's heat shrink, but he's not selling. He never says he's selling heat shrink tubing. He's selling a application, which is what this guy's doing. So you use heat shrink tubing. To accomplish something. So you use heat shrink tubing to basically cover wires. That's what you use heat shrink tubing for. So additional but, strain relief. Yeah. So he's, but he's selling 
the application of protecting your fancy Apple cables. Okay. That's what he's selling. He's not selling heat shrink tubing. He's selling that application to you. Okay. Well, I guess he saw he saw an issue and came up with a solution. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, I think it's a little dirty. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we were uh, brainstorming ideas for other Kickstarters that would be like this. So what's the idea you had? So the first idea I came up with was called Screw. And that's S K R U, and the, the the U has the little umlauts over yeah. it, so it's so it's screw. Yeah, and so it's, and we we chose the umlauts too because it looks like a smiley face. That's right. So it makes yeah. the makes the person who buys it happy. So uh, you can use screw to uh, to fix two things together and and hold them together. Yeah, hold them together. <laughs> uh, and I think I can make a killing on this. Yeah. I, I think I think I can get funded in in I'm going to say less than ten minutes. Less than ten minutes. Less than ten minutes. Ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars minimum. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and you know I think I think you should be able to buy screw for I don't know uh, you get a box of three of them for uh, eight dollars. I think that sounds reasonable. You know I always hated that when you buy fasteners and it gives you an odd number of fasteners <laughs> it's like hot dogs and, and buns right So you have to buy because most time you need either two fasteners yeah. or four yeah of a specific kind and you get three so it's like you always have one extra or one enough yeah right <laughs> right so uh yeah if uh any of our listeners have any ideas for silly kickstarters that are like screw or sleeve uh give us a tweet and it's like, I think it's, uh, you can either tweet us at, at Macrofab or at Longhorn Engineer with no O's in Longhorn. Yeah. Or at Macro Ninja Near. That's all, Macro underscore Ninja Near. Yeah. And all those links are in the blog post. Yep. Uh, so yeah, uh, if, if, if any of the listeners have a goofy Kickstarter idea, uh, shoot it to us and we will, uh, we'll talk about it next week on the podcast. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I think... I think Screw's got potential. Screw, we just got to find yeah. that that one application that already has the solution of the screw, but it's the screw. The, the, the screw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't believe sleeve. That's it's, just it's ridiculous. That's just an insane profit margin, man. And the fact that no one called them out because Kickstarter is usually actually pretty good about this because you're not supposed to be able to resell a product. Uh, completely. Well, okay, so he's buying it in bulk and cutting it down. So he's moving the scissors once and then putting <laughs> it into a poly bag with a what looks like a business card for the instructions. That's that's, and his instructions don't even use the proper way. He's he's telling people to use a lighter to shrink it instead of a proper heat gun. Yeah. So, well. So yeah. so it's it's, a, it's it, it even has a safety uh, concern issue. there. Yeah. <laughs> And his uh, and it's it's not even like he did even fancy stuff with the adhesive. It still has the problem that adhesive line heat shrink has is when you shrink it too much, the adhesive squirts out the end, so it actually doesn't look too nice. And it gets all goopy. It gets all goopy. And so, in fact, in one of his pictures, you can see the goop. Yeah, and it's like all over the lightning connector. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> well, maybe maybe I'm a little jealous that he was able to score like ten thousand free dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Oh, so if here's an example: 
you buy you buy a ten foot two by four, you cut it down into one foot sections, and you sell each one foot section as uh, WUD wood, and and there you go, <laughs> and use it as uh, as doorstops. Perfect Kickstarter. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. That would be a terrible doorstop. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah. Have, if y'all have any crazy ideas or silly ideas, preferably silly ideas, yeah. tweet us. We'll talk about it. Uh, and we'll try to find an, a crazy application for your your screw or your wood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess I'll do it for uh, this week, right, Stephen? Yeah, I think so. And so uh, we'll see y'all next time on the uh, Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. Later, guys. Take it easy.